Good morning. Uh, suddenly the sanctuary feels so empty, right? It's always a joy to have um, kids in our midst. It's a blessing from God. Yesterday was our CPR, uh, and we heard a few wonderful testimonies uh, about the community, and I wish more of us were there. Uh, we want to be a f- spirit-filled, fervently praying church family. So a reminder that our monthly prayer meetings on Wednesday nights, we actually stop all our DGs so that we can come together to pray. And then there are, we have four CPRs uh, a year. Other than watch night, uh, Good Friday is also the first week of July and first week of October. So the next one, I want to encourage more of us to come. Um, especially it is, we'll be praying for our church's uh, 60th anniversary. Uh, so make a date in your, uh, ca- a mark in your calendar, um, first Saturday of October. Well, thank God we are not preaching on Song of Songs. We are actually going through the book of James, okay? If you think it's hard for you to listen, it's harder for me to preach it. Um, The book of James is on marks of a spiritual maturity. Uh, This year, our theme is following Jesus. We figured after going through the pandemic, uh, still going through it, a lot have changed. The world has changed. We have changed. But what does it mean for us in these changing times to follow this unchanging God? So what does it mean to follow Jesus? So we began with the Psalms of Ascents, a journey that the Israelites will undertake to go to the temple in Jerusalem and the elements involved in this journey. Likewise, our Christian journey, what we need. The second series of Lent, we talk about costly grace. To follow Jesus is costly because it's a call, call to follow. But it is also grace because it's a call to follow Jesus. And then we saw the great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us, the different people of faith. And in June, then we saw about area of biblical sexuality. What does it mean to follow Jesus in the area of sexuality? And so, uh, this month, we'll look at the book of James. When you say you're a spiritual, spiritually mature Christian, uh, what does it mean? So some people say that, you know, uh, James is... Um, the Proverbs of the New Testament, because it seems that there's a whole random collection of uh, wisdom sayings. But I think actually they follow a certain train of thought. Most of spiritual maturity first is to stand in confidence when you face trial and temptations, to serve with compassion, and then to speak with care. How do we control our tongue? And it's not just our tongue. The second part of James 3 talks about our thoughts, because our thoughts influence our tongue. And then James 4 talks about how we submit with contrition, we, how we seek true comfort. Do we seek true comfort in secure, sufficiency or suffering? And then finally, how do we stand firm in community, in prayer and praise? So today we look at James chapter 1, to stand in confidence when we face trials and temptations. Uh, let us pray. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, I pray that as we open your word, you will convict our hearts. We will see Christ lifted up, and Father, you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, David Lang, he is a beloved professor in Singapore Bible College. And his three wonderful children, bright, lively. Um, you know, his kids at the age of three, they can already read and write. Uh, some three-year-olds, we are still fig- trying to figure out ABCs, right? And his third son, his youngest child, he can do math at an advanced level with kids two years older than him. Now, when his older child is his oldest child, his daughter, was five years old. She began having seizures. Then she, her movement uh, became impeded. And it got so bad, he had to give up his uh, PhD studies in Chicago to return to Singapore to take care of her. 
Now doctors were baffled. They couldn't understand what was happening. What was worse is that the same symptoms began showing up in the second child. In 2004, they went for a church retreat and at breakfast, his son, the second child, choked. Next 19 days, he was in coma and then finally, he passed on. And because of that, they were able to extract certain tissues and sent to the US to be examined and a diagnosis came back. You know, they had a very rare disease. In fact, they were the first cases in Singapore. In such cases, the children will be born normal and healthy, but when they hit a certain age, they begin to degenerate. Eventually, they'll be paralyzed. They'll not be able to walk, to breathe, even to feed themselves. They'll require 24-7 care. Now, can you imagine if you're the parent to see your child being healthy and normal and then just, without a reason, just degenerating? The amount of stress that will bring to the family, the marriage, your emotions, your finances, your spirituality. At the beginning of the year, we read this article about a father who killed two of his sons. Do you remember? Because they had special needs. We can never imagine the despair that the father was in. And as then as believers, how do we respond to these trials in our lives? And maybe we pray, Lord, why me? You know, why am I the one going through this? Or perhaps we'll be praying, Lord, why not me? The children, they are innocent. Why is it happening to them? I'd rather it happened to me. So how do we respond when we face trials? That is what I'd like us to think about today. Because even though we may not face such extreme trials, but certainly we have our own share of challenges, of difficulties. In our relationships, stress in our work, at homes, how do we respond? James chapter 1 will tell us a God's command on how we should respond. And then two areas or two what, or actions of what we should not do and what we should do. So first, verse 1 to 12, to seek joy in trials. You know, when we look at verse 1 to 12, it begins with the word trial. And verse 12 ends with the word trial. So we know that everything in between is really talking about how we face trial. And then verse 13 is temptations, but the root word is similar to a trial. And so how do we, what is this temptation? What, what, does it, what is it referring to? It shows us that entire chapter 1 is a unit because there's a repeated word, teleos, perfect. The first section is the perfect man. Second section is perfect gift. Last section, perfect law. They're all dealing, even though they seem to be talking about different topics, they're really dealing with the one issue on how we face trials. Verse 1 to 12, it ends with, Blessed is the one who endure trials. And the third section, verse 24, 25, says, Blessed is the one who obeys God, who, who does the word of God. And these two repetitions then shows us that uh, chapter 1 is one unit. Now why I go through all this is, so that as we read the verses later, we would be able to interpret in the light of the issue of how do we respond to trials. And so, the first section, seek joy in trials. Look to God for wisdom to do so, not your own circumstances. And then verse 12 summarizes it. Those who endure are blessed. Verse 1. James, the born servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. This James is not Apostle James, the brother of John. It's the brother of Jesus, James who at one point didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. And then Jesus died and resurrected, and he became a believer. Not only that, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he wrote this book. 
He greeted them and then he began. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Trials in this context, most of the readers are poor. They were being uh, slandered, dragged to court by the rich people, being persecuted for their faith. But here James added the word various, expanding the scope, all the different challenges you face. Um, he says, consider it all joy. Now, joy is not happiness. Joy is not a feeling by a commitment and a conviction. It's not that when your loved one dies, you go, ah, it's okay, you know, I'm joyful. That's not joyful, that's having some issues. And more so, the word consider, the main verb in this whole sentence, uh, the following statement, there's only this main verb, consider it all joy. It's imperative, it's a command, it's not a suggestion. It is a, not just an imperative, uh, it's not a present imperative, meaning it's not that you have to feel it now. It's an Aries imperative, meaning you think through all the way. The word consider is to count, like an accountant. Count it. Count carefully, deliberately, all the way. means we have this attitude that what I'm facing is good. How? By considering all the way to the end. So you count what you're facing carefully, you'll see that it is joy, it is good. Why? Because the testing of faith produces endurance. Endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The end process of this trial you are going through is to make you perfect. Now, perfect doesn't mean you're sinless. Perfect here means mature. What does it mean to be a mature believer? It means, you know, we're not tossing and turning around in our faith. We're not doubting God or questioning God. No, of course we can have questions. Of course we will wrestle. But when somebody is mature, it means they are stable. You know God and you can lean into God. Oftentimes, how do we view all these trials in our lives? See, C.S. Lewis, he said that God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. No one, none of us want to go through difficult times. We want to go through good times, pleasures. But then, you know, in these times, we don't learn to rely on God. Because there are many other things to rely on. And so, we have a lot of head knowledge, but does that about God, but does it trans transform into our hearts? Oftentimes, it's only in trials, in disappointments, in failures, that we have nothing else to rely on that we learn to rely on God. That's why they're saying, right, we know that all we need is Jesus, but we don't really know that all we need is Jesus until all you have is Jesus. I mean, I shared with you before, you know, when my daughter was young, she had a blood issue, right? And because one of our members sit on the board of the best children hospital in Texas, we've got to see the best children doctor. And the best children doctor in Texas, probably the, one of the best in the US. And sitting in front of him, I'll never forget, you know, this person of high esteem, the expert, and he told me, oh, we don't know what's going on. You know what's that moment? That is the moment when you realize that all you have is Jesus. I mean, what else am I going to rely on? And so many times we have an illusion that we have a lot of resources that rely on, we can depend on this, but truly, we can only depend on Jesus. And often, we only see that and experience that when we go through difficult times. When we realize that we are nobody, we have nothing to rely on but Jesus. So how do we see trials as something good? James tells us, you pray, you ask for wisdom. Verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask. God will not despise you. God gives you. Ask 
with faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded, unstable in all his ways. No, this is one of our favorite verses. When is it our favorite? When we face exams, we pray, Oh God, give me wisdom, you know. Everything that I study, I can remember. Then I taught my kids, don't just pray everything you study, remember. I pray that everything I didn't study, I also remember. That's very funny. I thought it was funny too, until when they're old enough and they pray the same prayer. I said, oh, oh, oh. And then my wife gave me black face. She said, see lah. <laughs> now in this context, it's, it's not just talking about prayers. It's talking about how do we see trial as something good. Consider it all joy when you face trials. How? Ask God for wisdom. Ask without doubting. And then he goes on to say, But the brother of humble circumstance is to glory in high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Why does he say this? They say, oh, the first is not about prayer, this is not about rich and poor. No. See, but the brother, it starts something in contrast to the previous section. And if you realize the previous section, he begins, but if you lack wisdom, it's related. And so, when we look at he says, if of humble circumstances means you're poor, don't, when you're poor, don't just look at your circumstances and say, you know, I have no hope, I have no help. Remember your high position in the Lord. You are a child of God. And in the contrast, for rich people, you glory in your humiliation. Don't depend on your resources. Depend on the fact that you are a child of God. You depend on your resources, but you know, you are like a flowering grass that will pass away. For the sun rises, this explains the, the part about the sun rises. The sun rises, the scorching wind withers the grass, flowers fall off, the beauty of his appearance is destroyed. So too is the rich man in pursuit, uh, in the midst of his pursuits will fail away. So verse 11 really is just describing the last part of verse 10. The key of this ver- section is 9 and 10, the contrast between rich and poor. And it relates to how we see trial as a good thing. By depending on God, by looking at God and not looking at our circumstances. And so verse 12, he ends it. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. See, the same word appears. Which means it's a bookend. Verse one, uh, verse 2 to 12 is one section. The whole thing is talking about how we face trial. Right? Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James at the beginning, he says he was writing to the 12 tribes who live in the diaspora. The, the Jewish people who have become Christians now living throughout the kingdom of Rome. These people were persecuted for their faith. Some were turning away from their faith. And so he writes this to encourage them. He says, when you're facing trial, remember, think it through, think it to the end. It is good because it helps you to mature to learn about God, to rely on Him. How do you do that? Ask God for wisdom. Look to Him, not to yourself. And if you persevere, you are blessed. That is what he's saying. Our question is, how do we look at the suffering and trials in our life? Is this something to be avoided? No good. Um, Viktor Frankl, the famous Jewish psychiatrist who survived three years in the concentration camp of um, the Nazis. He says, in those years, he noticed there are two, generally two groups of people. Some that lose the will to live and eventually just wither and dies. And others that continue to thrive despite the difficult circumstances. And you realize it boils down to this, whether you're pursuing meaning or happiness. 
Now, this later became his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a good book, but very chim book, okay? But anyway, it was a result of his research and observation in the concentration camp. He says, for those who are searching for happiness, there are some conditions you need to fulfill. And within the concentration camp in wartime, it's impossible. And so they lose their will to live. Those who are searching for meaning, it means that they're willing to sacrifice happiness for a greater cause or greater purpose. And it is these people that will thrive in the concentration camp. And so we ask ourselves, what are we living for? If you're living for happiness, are we living for purpose? Why do we search for purpose? You know, if there's a sense of emptiness, especially when you achieve something, it says, what was the purpose of it? What's the meaning? Now, if we do not believe we are created by God, then friends, we are only here by accident, right? A chemical accident, a random process, and we are here. So there's no true meaning to life. And so the good news is you don't have to angst about the emptiness. You're supposed to be empty. But we cannot live with that. We know that's not right. That is why the search for meaning, like the search for sexuality, is a signpost, a theological signpost that points us to God. That sense of unfulfillment that you want to fill causes you to go from one thing to another, searching for the fulfillment, and we will not rest until our souls find rest in our Creator. So, when we search for meaning or purpose, it is a search for us uh, for God. And if we follow God, then we understand that this trial I'm going through has meaning because there's a God. And that's why in my pastor's voice, I quoted from uh, Larissa McFarco. She does research into saintly people who uh, gives up or does great sacrifice for others. And she realized that a, a large portion of these people were religious. And herself, she, she is not religious, okay? And so she said, uh, religious people generally believe that Suffering is not necessarily a bad thing. Suffering will help them grow and so they can accept it. Whereas secular utilitarians like myself, referring to her, she says that, you know, we don't believe there's any good in suffering. It ought to be avoided. And so in one of the articles in New York Times, she wrote this, she says, secular people also have no belief in a God who will someday make, put things right. It's up to us. For people of faith, God is in control and God's love will see the world through. That is why I think that for secular people, there can be an additional layer of urgency and despair. And so if we are followers of Christ, we believe in a God, how do we respond to the trials in our life? Do we tumble, grumble, or do we rumble? Do we give up? Do we grumble or do we crumble? Or do we continue to rumble in our faith because we know there's a good and sovereign God? And so there's a purpose of why I'm going through this. And so there are two common responses when we face difficulties. One is to doubt God. The other is to be angry. And so James addresses this. He says, seek joy in trials. And then he says, don't blame God. Don't, don't doubt God. Trust Him. Verse 13 13 and 18, the second section, is, it begins by don't blame God for temptations. And then he says all good gifts, including new birth, come from God. And we try to understand why he said this. After talking about trials, he says, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now we can take this as general temptations that we face or in context of trials, what we are tempted to do, to blame, to doubt and he says, don't do that. 
Don't blame God for putting you in this circumstance because it's not. Because it's good. Like, like David Lang, he shared, you know, he says, when he saw his children one by one, just degenerating from really uh, intelligent, healthy kids, and eventually, you know, all of them um, have to lie down and cannot move. He says, I prayed, I prayed, why God, why me? And then eventually I prayed, God, why not me? You know, why do you let my children, they're innocent, go through this, they're innocent. I'd rather I become like that. And as a result, he began to be angry. Angry with people, angry with God. And I think, friends, that's a natural response, you know. If you go through difficult times and you don't feel or you don't have questions, I wonder why. Because if you believe that there's God who is sovereign and God who is good, shouldn't we have some response? So unless you're very spiritual and you have no problems, or you're just being emotionally stunted. Just Joni Erickson Tada tells of this story. She says, imagine if a woman is being robbed at gunpoint in this dark alley. An off-duty policeman walks by. He sees it, he unholsters his gun, but after a few minutes, he walks away. Now who's at fault? Who is to be blamed? Now immediate agency, of course, is the man, the robber, right? But ultimate agency is the policeman scot-free. We feel that he should have done something. And so she said, likewise, that's perhaps how we look at God. When we go through all these circumstances, and yes, there's immediate agency, there could be the sin or somebody doing this to me, but ultimately, if we believe in a good God, and we wonder why. And James tells us here, don't be tempted to blame God. He continues to say, each one is tempted, he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. He said, if you continue to persist to blame God, say in your marriage, you know, he says, God, I did it the right way. You know, we dated a Christian, we dated to marry, to have sex, we tried to love each other and honor you. But then, my marriage is in a mess. Why? We blame God, he says, we have doubts with God. Why this happened? You know, it shouldn't happen. But maybe it's because of the choices we made along the way to neglect the relationship, to turn to other sources of comfort. Choices we make not to honor one another, things we have promised one another, and then after we married, we changed. So he thinks that don't blame, I mean, don't doubt God. Look at ourselves. Is the sin within us, last conceived, brings to, to death eventually. Our workplace, we struggle, right? See, why is it so difficult? But maybe it's along the way, all the choices we made. And so the idea here is don't, don't doubt God, instead, trust Him. That is why verse 16 says, do not be deceived. Don't be tempted to blame God. Look at yourselves, do not be deceived because every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Earlier he says, the perfect man, meaning mature man, here the perfect gift. You believe that God is the Father of light. There's no shadow, means there's no doubt. He gives perfect gifts, means what we have, He gives good gifts. And so when I'm going through this trial, don't blame Him. Don't doubt Him. Trust Him. That's what He's saying here. Trust God. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth from the word of truth so that we would be the kind of first fruits among His creatures. God saved us, you are a child of God. To be first fruits amongst those who are saved as we go through the trials. To know that God is saying, James is saying that God, trust Him. You know, He doesn't waste our pain or our tears. 
There's a couple, um, Jay and Kim. They have an eight-year-old daughter called Lindy who uh, has cerebral palsy. So basically, she cannot move. And so they custom-made this little red wheelchair for her, you know, with straps so they can hold her body up and her legs down uh, because they live in an area that's mountainous and it's hard to maneuver. After customizing that, that wheelchair, uh, Lindy got to sit in it for a few times and then she passed away. So they were shocked, they were sad. But in the midst of their tears, they realized they wanted to use the wheelchair to somehow still honor God. And they heard of this organization, Wheels for the World, uh, an organization started by Joni Erickson Tada. Essentially, it supplies wheelchairs to the people in the third world countries who cannot afford it. So two years later, they flew with the organization to Peru. And on the airplane, they were praying, God, can you use this wheelchair for somebody? Because it's so custom-made, so specialized. How is it going to be used? You know, it's not just normal wheelchair. Now, in Peru, in the mountains, there's a family of six. An 11-year-old boy who also has cerebral palsy. And all his life, he has just been lying in bed. He cannot even go to school because they firstly cannot afford a wheelchair. Secondly, even if they can afford, it's hard to find that kind of custom-made wheelchair that can maneuver in those mountainous regions. They bought a ticket, took a four-hour bus trip to the city because they heard that the organization was coming to town. And God orchestrated two families from different parts of the world who didn't know each other, who had different cultural and language background to meet. And their little red wheelchair found a new owner. See, God doesn't waste our tears and our pain. Instead of doubting Him, to trust Him. And so when we look at a pandemic, three years, what have we learned? If all we are yearning for is to return to our pre-pandemic days, um, we have to ask ourselves, are we wasting this pandemic? What are the trials that you are going through in life that brings you pain and tears? When God shouts in our pain, He doesn't waste our tears. Don't doubt Him. Trust Him. And the other response then is to be angry. And so after He says this, you know, about being the first fruit of His creation, James goes on in the third section in verse 19 to say, don't ang be angry, obey Him. First, don't be angry. Second, obey God. So this you know. My beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For, why? Because the anger of man does not achieve what God is trying to do. We are familiar with this verse, you know. Don't be so quick to speak and respond. Be slow. Don't get angry. But it's not simply don't get angry. The whole idea is, in trials, how do we respond? Don't be angry. Because in your anger, you wouldn't fulfill what God is trying to do. Don't be angry. Therefore, put aside all fil filthiness and all remains of wickedness, but in humility, receive the word. Why? Don't be angry, receive the word. Because in the word, we learn about God. In the word, we know who this God is. So receive the word and then prove yourself, do the word, don't just hear. Prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude yourself. If you listen to the word and you don't respond, you are just deluding yourself. You're like someone, the hero of the word and not doer. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once, he has looked at himself and gone away. He has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. 
The, mi- the Bible is like a mirror. We read it, we realize our condition, we, what we need to do, and when you don't do it, it's like you walk away and you forgot you know, what, is, what your face looks like or what your makeup is like. But the one who looks intensely at a perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer by effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. See, the word blessed appears again. Who is blessed? Verse 12, it says, the man who perseveres in trials is blessed. Who is blessed? At the end of this section, it says, the man who responds to the word of God is blessed. And so we see this whole section being tied up together. How do we see trial as something good? By thinking to the end. Realizing it matures, it causes us to lean into God. And then he goes on to say, don't doubt God, trust Him, don't get angry, obey. Look at the word of God, the perfect law, because in it, we find God. In it, we realize who God is. We build our relationship with God. And hence, the importance of knowing God's word. If you want to have a relationship with Him, it's through God's word. But in this context, it is responding to it because think about who God is. You know, when we look at modern books about how you deal with stress and pressure, you go to a bookshop, there's a lot of this kind of books, you know. And it's always, you know, think positively, um, do something you like, relax, go jogging, go spa, you know. Nothing wrong with all these things. But the suggestion is always look into yourself. Why? Well, because the presupposition is there's no God. And so if you do not believe in the supernatural, there's nothing to look at. We only look at ourselves. So the pain you go through, you what can you do? You can only say that, I mean, you're unlucky, right? So suck it up. Uh, you know, the, the tough gets going, the tough, <laughs> whatever, tough. You know, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you don't look into yourself. You look outside of yourself. You look to God. Meditate on the Word of God. And that is why it begins with this section. Consider it all joy. Think to the end. Think like an accountant. Count your blessing. Count what God has done in your life. And here it says reflect on the Word of God, the perfect law. Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, I consider that the suffering of this present times are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Consider. The word consider here is to think out logically. And so we see our faith is not blind faith. Faith is built on the mind. We can only believe what we can accept. And because there are things that we have experienced, accept. Therefore, when it comes to taking a leap, it's not blind faith leap. It is a leap based on our experiences with God of who God is. Consider who God is. When we look at the Bible, the reality is we live in a sinful, broken world and there is suffering. Okay, If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about suffering and what God is trying to do to redeem suffering. So I cannot imagine how we can come away from the Bible thinking that life will not have suffering. Unless sin is taken away, then there's no suffering. And how did God, the whole Bible, trying to solve this problem is through the gospel. Jesus came to die so that sinners, imperfect people, we can be affected, uh, accepted by a perfect God, not based on our goodness, not based on our morals, but based on what Jesus had done. And that is why we are saved by faith, by grace through faith. It's grace. We don't deserve it. It's by faith, by trusting in what Jesus has done. And so when you look at James, how do we 
face trials, says, seek joy. Look at it as good because of perfect man it matures you. Don't blame, don't blame God, trust Him because what God gives is perfect, is good gifts. Don't be angry, obey Him. Obey the perfect law. And we go down to the heart of the gospel, this is exactly what we see, isn't it? Because Jesus is the perfect man. He was sinless and unblemished. He's the perfect gift of God, offered as a sacrifice to God so that we can be accepted. And He is the perfect Word of God. He is what? The Word made flesh. Friends, in the Christian faith, our God is not a God who has created us and left us alone. He came, He ripped apart the fabric of time and space, entered into His creation um, as a carpenter uh, to die for our sins. Not only did He die, He resurrected. And then at the very heart of the Gospel, we see uh, the solution to facing trials. is coming to Jesus Christ. And if God has given us His Son, what else would He not give us? In Romans 8, when Paul says, consider the suffering of this present world not worthy, he goes on to say, I mean, He has already given us His Son, what else will He withhold from us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he ends with, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So while we face challenges in life, brokenness, pain, the source of comfort then is to come back to the gospel. The gospel, friends, is not something we have accepted 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's something that we need every day to be reminded that we're sinners, they're reminded that we are broken, they're reminded that we live in an imperfect world. There are longings that ne- will never, may never be fulfilled, but we have Christ. And through that, His sustaining grace. Through that, He's a God who responds to our prayers, a God who walks with us and never abandons us. You know, times when we face difficult struggles, sometimes it's not that we need God to answer us our questions. Sometimes all we need is His presence. When His Word speaks to us, when the body of Christ responds and we see God's love. David Langshed, he says in his desperation, you know, after seeing his children like that, he had to, only, the only thing he could do was turn back to the Word of God. And he found much comfort in the book of Job, you know, which talks about great suffering. What he noticed was all the questions he had about God, Job also had. But you know, in the book of Job, God did not answer Job at the end, right? After that whole, don't know how many chapters, I think 40 chapters of complaining and his friends giving bad, uh, bad uh, advice, God appears. And God didn't answer the questions that Job asked. God just appears and says, look at my creation. Look at this and look at that. He says, were you there when I created? No. And so, what God required from Job is trust, faith. To know that he's, he has not abandoned him. And isn't that what we need? So David Langshed, he says, there are times when you know, this time when his daughter could not be discharged from hospital because her ventilator machine was spoiled. They couldn't get a replacement. He put this on Facebook. There was a couple in Indonesia that didn't really know him. When they read this news, they flew down to Singapore and uh, bought two new ventilators for him. It says to him, that was the presence of God. Another time, he says his secondary school friends that he had not seen since 1974. They read the news they crowdfunded to buy a van, you know, with ramps so that he can push the two wheelchairs onto the car, the vehicle directly. And to him, that is the presence of God. You know what that means? 
That means each one of us, we can be the hands and legs of Jesus to someone else. When you pick up the phone to, to comfort somebody, you send a text, you buy food, you spend time drinking kopi with somebody, to that person, you may be the very presence of God that they need. I know in my most difficult times, you know, when the church responded, uh, put food outside your house, send encouragements, these little things are so important. And so as the body of Christ, as we look at these trials, we know we can seek, see how we see trials, it can be a good thing. How? By trusting in God and not doubting Him, by obeying Him and not being angry. But we turn it around to say that we too can be a blessing and comfort for someone else. So friends, friends, when we face challenging times, do we tumble, do we crumble, do we grumble, or do we rumble along? We can stand in confidence because of the gospel. Because God has proven He will not abandon us. And that is our hope and our joy. Let us pray. Trust and obey For there's no other way To be happy in Jesus But to trust and obey Father, I give thanks to you For upon the cross You sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ To die for us And truly, there's no other way to be happy Other than to trust and obey Thank you, Lord I pray in Jesus' name Amen